Welcome to Planet Beyond, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in delivering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. Sometimes in life, you're introduced to a familiar topic and you walk away with an entirely different perspective. That was my experience when we started exploring topics around the current skill shortages in the workplace. When you challenge some established thinking or habits around recruitment practices, open your mind to alternatives, we find a rich resource of talent. We are talking today specifically about military veterans. Now, for many of us, a military career and what it means to be a soldier is a black box, a complete unknown. Fortunately for us, we have two guests who do know what this means, and they are Fergus Williams, CEO of Walking with the Wounded, and our very own Paul Ensel, Marine Technology Trainer at Fugro. So, gentlemen, for the benefit of us in the civilian world, why don't we start at the beginning? with your time serving in the military before we move on to that transition period to Civvy Street. Yeah, Fergus, could you share your story? Uh, yeah, John, Paul, good afternoon. I joined the army in 1990. I had nine great years in the military. I was an officer. Uh, I was in the infantry and in the Welsh Guards and uh, I had a really good time, but I guess the experiences that I had in the military, I um, I learned a lot. I was challenged a lot, and it enabled me to grow as an individual and take on a lot of those sort of early doors responsibilities, management and leadership that I still draw on today. And so for me, it was a hugely positive experience. I have to say, you know, my military career was not war fighting per se you know i did some time in northern ireland three years but it wasn't like the last 20 years of afghan and iraq and that sort of thing i had some really good jobs um, and i ended my military career working at st james's palace for the prince of wales which was absolutely fascinating and then left i left in 1998 and then joined a direct sales company as a sort of a as, as a sort of commercial manager and uh, that was an experience, you know, leaving the military and its various sort of set ways um, and taking some of those skill sets and then taking that uh, onto a, a more commercial footing. I set up my own project management business and that took me through until effectively I, uh, I sold that and came and joined the charity in 2011. And then I was back in the veteran space uh, and looking at veterans issues. And so it's been a really interesting journey. It hasn't been with its, with, without its downs, but there have been plenty of ups as well. It sounds like you have fond memories of your time in the armed forces. And despite the ups and downs since, you're now settled. We definitely want to hear more about the charity Walking with the Wounded in a moment. But first, let's hear from Paul. Paul, could you tell us about your time in the military? Okay, John, well, thank you for having me. Well, for me, I joined the military at 19 and followed the path of a couple of my school friends who had embarked on a military career straight from school. What I wanted to do was 
was achieve a, a technical based career to, to give me qualifications that I could bring over into uh, Civvy Street. Like Burgess, I also did nine years, but I joined the Royal Signals at the start of my career and I was in the Royal Marines when I left my career. Um, the reason I joined the Royal Signals was uh, radio communications really interested me. I've always been a bit of a tech geek, but I also wanted a bit of action, a bit of excitement. Uh, so I chose a combat-based role as a radio telegraphist. And the reason I joined the Signals was because as, as a younger child or as a, a person that was looking to go in the military, the Royal Marines initially really tempted me. Unfortunately, as a, a rather shy, nervous, 60 kilogram, 18 year old at the time, it was a bit, uh, it was a bit too daunting for me. So I, I decided on the Royal Signals instead. Um, and the reason I chose that regiment was because they also had a commando attachment, a para and a special forces one. So it gave me a bit of options if, um, if I ever want to do something a little bit more exciting. Coming uh, into the future, uh, after several tours um, in the Balkans and Afghanistan, and getting a lot of exposure to the, the Marines, uh, one we were co-located with in, in Kabul. Um, I was dead set on going down the Marine route, but unfortunately I couldn't get the crypto training. So after exhausting all avenues, I decided to leave the army entirely and to join the Royal Marines directly, uh, which I did, and then spent uh, four and a half years with the Royal Marines, unfortunately leaving due to um, sustaining an injury in service. And what about the present day? What is your current role? Now I am a marine technology trainer for the Fugro Academy, which is a not-for-profit department within Fugro, responsible for the training development of our staff, both shore and offshore based. I focus primarily on RAV training and marine survey systems for the offshore sector. Prior to that, I spent around eight years as a senior offshore uh, survey engineer working in mostly in West Africa, but I've deployed globally with Fugro. Thank you, Paul. I just want to move back to Fergus for the moment. Fergus, we ended your tale with you at a charity for veterans. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Walking the Wounded started in 2010, and the founder who started it all. He, his nephew lost both legs. And at that point, he wanted to raise some money and raise some awareness about the, the casualties that were coming out of um, Afghanistan at the time. And so he came up with a harebrained idea of he could take some wounded soldiers to the North Pole to demonstrate uh, a couple of things, I think is, well, first of all, raise some money to ask the question, what are these guys going to do after they've they're as fit as they can be, having been injured, and also, um, you know, how they uh, how they can reintegrate into society. And so he took these guys to the North Pole, raised a chunk of change, and then we started investing uh, money into the charitable sector to uh, to seed fund other people's employment programs. Uh, to answer that question, what are you going to do now as a as a wounded soldier who can no longer soldier? You need to leave the military. You need a good, resilient job and add value back in. You're 22. What are you going to do for the rest of your life? 
So we started with an employment program and that worked quite well, but we then started to understand that there were barriers to employment. And so we brought in a mental health program to support those that were looking for job with their mental health. And then we realized actually part of the issues around mental health Yes, you have the trauma that you may have experienced. Now, for a civilian, that might be a car crash or you know, yeah. anything. For them, it was an incident in, in Afghanistan or Iraq. But actually, there are other things that are driving poor mental health just common or garden stuff that happens to all of us in society, you know, whether it be debt, family breakdowns, alcohol, mm -hmm. poor housing. And so we realized that actually we needed to start to address some of those because you can put somebody in a white room and go, yes, great. And, and, and not brainwash them, but give them a clinical pathway to clear their head and to understand and process the trauma that they're thinking about. But actually, mm -hmm. if you then go home and there's a debt letter, you know, and it's that that's winking at you going, yeah. actually, my life can't change. It won't change. And so we've we've now got an, another program which we call Care Coordination, which addresses those wider what we call psychosocial issues, which is about living well in your community. And we also have a volunteering program. And so we've built that up over the last 10 years to where we are now and we've got a national footprint uh, delivering these and I think this year we will support about 3,500 veterans within one of those four pillars yeah. of what we do but I guess walking the wounded is very much dealing with the lowest end of the vulnerability scale we do deal with those with quite enduring mental health issues who are not operating and have not had a good transition and that are not resilient in their transition out of the military. And so that's what we do. And those are the, the, the guys that we look after. And we do it very successfully, I think. I think to understand what these people are going through when they leave the military, we need to understand more about them. I think we, I think we need to understand service. So I would like to ask both of you, as veterans, what do you think it means for someone to serve? From my perspective, it's, um, it's, it, initially it's something that's challenging. It's it, you know, deeply challenging. Um, so to to achieve that, you, it instills in, in you um, a deep a deep pride. It becomes your identity for a lot of people. Um, you know, you you are you, you're not working as a soldier. You are a soldier. You know, you you are your regiment. You carry the traditions of your regiment with you. You know, the, the successes and the failures. It it, it it becomes your whole life, and it's something that you're deeply proud of. You're deeply proud of you know what you've done, what you've achieved. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a complete sense of identity. I'm fascinated by this question because in business, leadership groups spend an absolute age working on trying to align people to think in this sort of way. And people who have served seem to come out with that sense of pride. Fergus. Those that want to join the military want to join the military for, for very specific reasons. And it is a, it's an honor actually mm, to serve. Mm. And, and actually we must make this a bit wider. People that want to serve their country do it in many different ways, whether it's the NHS or join the police or the fire brigade or, or the military. 
And I think that does attract a certain section of society who 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 are attracted to that. So the first thing there is, is we are recruiting people that want to benefit society as a whole. Mm. So I think that's really good. The second thing is, I, I think Paul's Paul's analogy of that comradeship, it is it is all consuming. And when you do join the military, you probably don't know it when you start. But actually, what you're doing is operating for your team, with your team, by your team. And this is the bit. And coming back to, you know, or I'm sure we'll start to talk about the, the employment piece. That is where it really excels because the the military and certainly where I worked within the within the um, within the infantry, building teams and building effective teams that are mission orientated is what they do day in, day out. And let's face it, the army asks people to do some pretty challenging things that actually don't sit comfortably with with people that have never served. You know, sitting in a FOB, in a forward operating base in Afghanistan for 28 days or six months or whatever it is, is quite a strange existence. But you do it for your mates. And that came writ large, and you know, and I, you know, I was sat there in a command position, but it was fascinating seeing groups of young men bond together over a joint mission, a, 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 a team focus, and how they supported each other in difficult circumstances. And it brings the best out of us. It really does. I get the point that this level of camaraderie, this level of bonding is a hugely powerful thing when you have a task to achieve, when you need to work as a team. But could we speak more specifically now about some of the skill sets that this environment will naturally foster and develop? For me, it's fascinating because, of course, developing a culture within a corporate is really tough. Um, because actually you've only got control over these individuals for eight hours a day. And actually it's a very open and transparent in the military. It's a much closer network. It's much tighter knit teams and you spend much more time with each other. So that culture is driven, is driven hard and fast. Um, And that culture of teamwork and loyalty and comradeship, that is about the team bonding together. Uh, And clearly overarching that is the military discipline uh, and that mission orientated approach to life, uh, which is very different to how you build teams in, 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 in the corporate world. But I think the essence is the individuals that come in want to do public service. And that is a sort of a selfless commitment to bettering. So they come in with that framework and then they're exposed to the teamwork that is happening and the development that is offered by the military. And, you know, actually, Paul, you know, your exposure to leadership was was very rapid. You know, for me, I was a 20, 20 year old guy with with 36 guys under command. I mean, that doesn't happen in Civvy Street. Is there any evidence that actually the, the military is a bit reckless putting so much responsibility on people so early? Or is it all a great success story? It's really interesting because the military uh, have this mission command theme. And mission command is it's army speak. But effectively, it says uh, you are allowed to make mistakes, but you can only make a mistake once. You can make as many mistakes as you like, but just make them not the same. 
so that's quite empowering. And it's something that I try to take into my organization is, yes, I don't mind if you, fa- uh, if you foul up, but if you do, yeah, learn from it, learn from it and be better next time. And that's driving our excellence, um, our excellence theme within this organization, because actually we constantly test and adjust to look at what is working well. Mm-hmm. And if something is not working well, we learn from it, we move on. And that's what Mission Command is all about, is the ability and the allowance to make a mistake, but and then give the individual space to learn from it. I was just about to say, just to add to that, because um, there is this incorrect assumption that if you're a soldier or an airman or a sailor that you get shouted at by someone with stripes on their chest and you do blindly what you're told Um, and it couldn't be further from the truth you know by giving people the responsibility at a young age um, you know and to you know to use a cliche you know enough rope to hang themselves what you in fact do is you're creating tenacious innovators and problem solvers you know people that don't want to fail and people that will find unorthodox results because the, yeah, the nature of the role in the military is a unique one. You know, you're, you're doing some strange things at times that you wouldn't expect to ever do. And none of the training that you will get in basic training will ever be enough for you to, 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 to face this strange occurrence or, or unusual situation. So you're forced under adverse circumstances, adverse conditions to find a solution. You know, and that, that just naturally creates you know, really good problem solvers and out-of-the-box thinkers. This ability to problem solve, to stand on your own, to be to be in a situation that you've not been in before, but be able to pull on a way of thinking that gets you out of that problem and moves you forward. It's enormously powerful, isn't it? We've been discussing a problem and I go, look, here, what about this for a solution? And people have said, well, how, how did you get to that? Mm. Well, that's that's the military mindset that's the the framework that i have been taught uh that i have learned from the military it's nothing special but actually it's an ability to understand what are you trying to achieve let's cut through all the noise the bandwidth the noise and everything and just focus on the mission and just uh deliver a plan that 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 works towards the mission um and it's you know actually you know, it's inherent in all of us that have served. Paul, you you had a technical position in the military, didn't you? Do you have any stories that demonstrate this ability? Well, during a particular exercise, the whole of 16 Air Assault Brigade were conducting uh, a nationwide exercise doing synchronised parachute jumps into different training areas around the UK with the intention of being able to communicate from the north tip of Scotland down to, I think it was Salisbury or maybe even down into Cornwall, uh, using man-portable radio packs. So basically only being able to parachute with the equipment you carry, so you have small rucksack-sized radios. And we were in Scotland in the the west coast, Stranraer, really struggling to get anybody on the radio. Um, And there's obviously a lot of pressure using a trailing wire antenna, which is just a roll of copper wire, trying to tune the HF radio and trying to get comms. We couldn't get anybody. So I decided to, we are in a field, peeing down with rain. I decided to wrap my copper wire, which is measured at the particular wavelength, onto this wire fence that was penning in some sheep in a field. So wrapped it around there, trailed it back to our position, 
tried in the hope that this wire fence would help boost the, 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 the reception. And lo and behold, we were talking to friends of ours that we serve with in the same unit. They were down in Cornwall or, or on the south coast of England. Uh, I think we even got a couple of Martians speaking on the radio at one point. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was um, innovative. It was a, a risk. It's like, what you've got nothing to lose. Let's try it. And uh, yeah, we managed to get communications in and uh, we weren't the laughing stock. Paul, maybe this is a good time to just go a little bit deeper into what you're doing in your current role. Well, my current responsibility is to train private sector students in uh, becoming PT2, which is pilot technician, ROV pilots, and also internal staff, uh, primarily internal staff, um, but we also offer the course out to private fee-playing clients. And it's um, a four-week course, training them from having zero experience to being able to fly a $3 million robot the size of a Nissan Micra under a ship anywhere in the world. Uh, And are you facing situations where these problem-solving skills really come to the fore? My responsibility and my training was with communications, um, radio communications, HF, VHF, UHF, satellite communications. And looking from the outside, you wouldn't see how that would be relatable to us surveying the seabed. But in fact, the skills are very, very transferable when you break them down. For instance, my primary skill set is underwater positioning, which is basically underwater GPS. It's the whole thing upside down using sound instead of radio waves. And the concept is exactly the same. And in the signals, I had very extensive GPS knowledge and it was completely transferable to, to underwater positioning. Let's move on from service itself, its challenges and its rewards, into that transition into the civilian world and finding a civilian career. What are some of those challenges facing veterans when they are seeking meaningful employment? Now, I'm going to come right out and say it. What are some of the obstacles companies inadvertently put in their way? I think... um... Some of the problems veterans face um, from a lot of uh, civilian employers is a initially a blanket requirement for a specific degree. I find that is a, a very big barrier to recruitment, uh, especially for veterans. Um, I myself don't have a degree and I left the military, although with a lot of qualifications and skills and um, not all of them were sort of civilian recognised. It certainly wasn't a degree. I think, uh, Fergus, you, you also, you're you in the same boat as me. You didn't have a... No, no, I didn't do a degree. Exactly. Another problem I find is uh, sort of very specific to the point of being confusing job titles. For instance, a survey engineer. Never heard of it, had no idea what it would do or what it was about uh, until I was actually doing the job. Um, and then it made total sense. So it wouldn't, you know, if you're trying to attract the type of talent that are leaving the forces, the only people you're going to attract by advertising for a survey engineer would possibly be someone in the Royal Engineers that did survey. You know, the vast majority of, of veterans would automatically assume I'm not qualified to do that or would dismiss it because they've got no idea of what it entails or whether they're able to do that. So the industry relies too heavily on a few key words in the job title to attract the people they need in their organisation? That's correct. 
Yeah, and I, I, for, as a third point, I would probably say uh, a lack of direct targeting. A lot of civilian employers fail to target veterans directly, which would be the most effective way. From everything you've been telling me, you don't have a technical degree, but you would tick all the boxes for such a position coming from a technical role in the military. Absolutely. I would argue that the, the military training is probably the best vocational training course in the world. It gives you all of the technical expertise uh, to do your job, not only to an expert level, but to be able to, under, to do it under extreme circumstances in, in dangerous conditions. And to be able to fault find, to be your own self-sufficient engineer or um, problem solver in a, in a position where you've likely got no support. Yeah, I would argue that it ticks all of the technical requirements of a degree in most cases for, for the technical roles in the military with dozens and dozens and dozens of bonuses that come with uh, a veteran soldier and, and someone that's served in the military. How would you summarise these bonus skills, Fergus? We are permanently learning a new job and getting on with it, getting those skill sets, delivering it to a high value and then moving on to the next job. And what you can't teach a soldier isn't worth teaching because they are just sponges. They, they, they've been grown up to be taught a job, get on with it and then move on to the next job. And they might not have the specific prerequisite training uh, or understanding or technical skill sets, but they are then trained. And if employers who uh, understand this can provide the correct training, and you know, Paul, you're a trainer here, you're training these guys coming in, they're like sponges. Uh, and it's absolutely inherent in the whole journey is train me and I'll be really good. I know what I'm talking about. And what I've done with my training courses is I've borrowed a lot from the military. For example, I don't just teach a technical subject. What I try and do is develop whole person development and leadership. And it's a philosophy that I've been pushing in the mentoring course that I developed in so much that I think everybody should be given leadership training. And a lot of companies fall down in that they only start to deliver leadership training to people that are identified for managerial roles. Now, leadership gives you confident decision-making skills. It gives you accountability. It gives you all of these good uh, side effects of people that aren't necessarily leading others. You know, a leadership skill isn't necessarily endowed on someone that leads other people. You can be you know, the lowest ranked shop floor worker and still be more effective if you're given leadership development and leadership skills and promoted to you know, use these leadership skills on a day-to-day -day basis, which then gets you ready. It, it, it assists in succession training. You know, so when you're looking for managers, you know, if, you, if they haven't got leadership skills at this point, it's too late. Leadership should be developed from the earliest start. And that's what we do in our training in the Fugger Academy. In that context, businesses could save a fortune by just working with people who've already got onto the fourth step of that ladder. Absolutely. Well, rem remember, for me, it's about team goals, you know, and we're all building our project teams and saying, here's a, here's a, here's a, an issue this is where we want to get to how are we going to do it and we all know that project teams need to have a diverse talent pool of completed finishers and thinkers and uh, and actually what we're taught in the military is how to build that team how to be part of that team 
And you don't need to be a leader, you need to be an effective part, but you need to lead your element. Know where you sit within that team. Every voice in the team is a valid uh, voice. And by, by empowering each of these individuals, irrelevant of uh, um, how subordinate or how um, high up they are, by possessing leadership skills, you know, they're going to have the confidence to, to contribute to that team. They may be the only one that sees the problem, Without the leadership skills, they're probably going to shy away. They're not going to be confident enough to, to raise their voice. Then you've got the safety element that comes into consideration. By promoting leadership across the board to everyone, as the military does, you're promoting these strong, decisive, confident, accountable team members, regardless of seniority. Fergus, let me make a wild assumption. You're the CEO of your organisation. You're at the top there. You've clearly been recognised for your leadership skills. Can I assume that your transition was an easy one? I wish. I wish. Actually, you know, the transition out of the military is quite tough. It is quite tough because you've been in a nine-year career and that's what you were very much focused on and I loved it. But actually, you know, I hadn't done an interview ever. Not since I joined the army, and that was when I was almost a child. I didn't understand, um, much as Paul has said, you know, what was wrapped up in a, I'm a survey engineer. Well, could I do a survey engineer? I, I don't really know what that is. And so you do feel a bit like a fish out of water. And for me, no, do you know what? I had four years of floating around, doing a couple of jobs, not being you know, I, I was being paid. I got jobs. It was fine, but I wasn't. I, I wasn't happy. I wasn't fulfilled. And actually, in the end, I started my own project management business because I, I, I felt that that's exactly right. what I needed for Ooh. myself. But no, do you know what? You know, with all the benefits of a good education and a good career in the army and a supportive uh, family, you know, it still did take me four years to find out what I wanted to do. I don't think we can expect, of course, the military to create the perfect person. Is there anything else we could possibly highlight generically, which people should recognise as something still to be developed with a military veteran? Job descriptions are, are tricksy. Being able to interpret your military career in such a way is not to frighten off the interviewer. Because, of course, the, you know, many people think, oh, military, it's shouting, screaming, belly aching, and it's all discipline. And, you know, if I say jump, how high do you want me to jump? Yeah. And it's absolutely not that. So there is that, 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 that education of civilian employers to say, look, this is a really cool talent pool. But if you go in with this mindset that it's just about shouting, screaming, and belly aching and discipline, then you're missing the point. And much of the work that is that is happening at the moment now, uh, which is about you know, signing the Armed Forces Covenant and understanding uh, the values that military people bring to the workplace um, and understanding their journey and maybe potentially changing their recruitment practices to be able to attract veterans to apply for jobs and understanding that as they come in, uh, they might turn around and say, yeah, yeah, I was I was doing this, you know, signals, uh, HF and you know, actually you need to be able to translate that into what it looks like in, within the civilian role. 
And of course, that's not easy when you're when you're not in the civilian realm and, and you need help in that way. So the bit the bit that we do a lot of work with corporates is building out their ex-military networks yeah. because it's the ex-military work networks that exist within the corporate can influence and inform their hiring practices about uh, how to attract military to what the values are that the military or ex-military guys will bring to the business and also gosh i never knew you served and god i never knew i you know some of my brightest stars are ex-military i had no idea mm. and then suddenly you see the added value of having a specific route recruitment pathway for for the military let's talk about some of the success stories of today and expectations for tomorrow. What is being done that helps veterans in their jobs at the moment? From a personal perspective, what helped me get into the offshore industry was attending a, um, a military-sponsored career fair, which was at RAF Honington. Um, I'm not sure whether it was arranged by the military or by a civilian point of contact, uh, but it was full of civilian employers across a whole spectrum of different industries. And I just went around and spoke to all the different employers asking about their industry, what they did, what they're looking for, and spoke to someone in the offshore sector looking for a, a positioning engineer for their, their fleet of survey ships. And obviously my first reaction was, oh, well, I'm not qualified to do that. And uh, he's like, hang on, you know, let me read your CV. And as it turned out, yeah, I was more than qualified. Um, I had all the relevant transferable skills because they were happy and flexible to, to look beyond the title of the skill, or the, you know, the specifics, but to see what the, that particular experience would have involved. The recruiter himself wasn't military, but he had you know, an affinity for the skills that come with veterans. And he, you know, he was the one that told me, no, no, you are more than qualified for this role, please apply. I did apply and I was very fortunate enough to, to get the position. Fergus? Clearly the military do support transition. They understand that you know every year 10, 15,000 people leave the military and they are good people and they need to be supported into, into new work. And so they do have this, 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 this thing called the CTP, the Career Transition Partnership, which is an employment journey that you go on. Uh, some people engage with it, some people don't. It's quite good now. Uh, the second thing that is a new thing is this focus on the Armed Forces Covenant. And the Armed Forces Covenant is a wider conversation about how the British military sits within UK PLC. It's about the reservist agenda, but it's also about how UK businesses should value military skill sets coming out and how they best can do that. Um, so that's a really, that's a, that's a good initiative that's starting. There are a couple of very notable companies that have really engaged in this. Jaguar Land Rover, they, they absolutely got it right. Uh, and they understand this equivalence of training and go, yeah, no, don't worry about it. You were doing this and we want you to do this and we can teach you the bit that you're missing and it's mm. not a problem and mm. it is an easy journey. And there are other such employers out there that do that. Uh, but I think the, what the advent 
a really positive advent is these ex-military um, communities that are growing up within businesses because they can inform the businesses. They can help translate some of them. And, you know, it's really useful when on the interview board, there's somebody that can help um, translate this guy's experience and, and tell them why it is relevant to that job. Um, I think there is an issue with, and it is being addressed, I do know it's being addressed by the MOD, but it is inherent, a long-term problem, which is this equivalent to training. You can be an army driver, but you can't be a civilian driver. You can be an army bricklayer, but you're not a qualified civilian bricklayer. And they are now trying to change that because that's absolutely daft. When you say they... So the MOD and the skills councils. Right, okay. The skills councils, so it would be the CITB. So the Ministry of Defence and the Construction Industry Training Board. Or whoever yeah. governs bricklaying and saying, actually, what we teach them in the military to be a bricklayer is as good, if not better, than your standard here is civilian. And they are then getting equivalence training. So actually, you can come out and say, look, I've done this job. And, uh, you know, I was not in a technical role, but I'm sure Paul was. And that would have been really useful that all your technical background of your signals training, if that came with a civilian training ticket, you could have been able to articulate and the employer would have been able to see the value of that immediately. So are there any specific examples of great successes we can point to? Um, any significant programmes? From the charity's point of view, um, we're looking at different industries that veterans might get jobs because clearly we try to get guys jobs as one of our sort of pillars of what we do. And we, we, we looked at the single biggest employer in the UK, the NHS, and we said, is there a direct route from the military into the NHS. And of course, the NHS is not all about doctors and nurses, a lot of it, but there is all sorts of technical skills that are required, whether that be a porter, a cook, a plumber, a you know heating technician, mm. and also the accountants and the business managers and the operational staff that make a hospital run. And so we approached our local hospital here in Norfolk, Norwich, and um, and asked them and they said no and i said would you, would you be open to uh, trialing something and they said yep let's go for it and um so we started to do these open days where we would take some veterans down there and they would then be hosted by the hospital and shown all the different opportunities that exist and it was interesting because of course when I was going down there for the first one, there was a hospital manager that was walking down the corridor in front of me going, oh, I can't, why are we having to babysit these veterans? And and that guy came back to me four months later going, oh, Fergus, Fergus, Fergus can I have another three Johns? Wow. Because he's absolutely brilliant. And that program has moved from a single pilot site in Norfolk to now being run out of, I think, 120 NHS trusts it will employ something like a thousand people this year, a thousand ex-military people this year. <laughs> Paul, you look like you have something you desperately want to throw in there. Just as a final point on that, one thing that would not cost anything at all but would be super effective is with your recruitment advertisers of any civilian employer, 
if you actively encourage the application of veterans, you know, for instance, a tagline at the bottom, we would especially welcome veterans to apply for this role. If you have experience or have served in the Raw Signals, REMI, if you're looking for technical trades or whatever sort of targeted audience you're looking for for the role, that speaks volumes. It doesn't cost a lot and it doesn't take much to recruit the types of skill sets from each of these individual regiments, some of which are very, very unique. In Fugro, for example, we're very, and they're all worthy placed, but we're very heavily sort of dependent on specific Royal Naval careers, artificers, um, hydrographic survey for the Admiralty. What we're not doing is targeting the avionics technicians in the RAF, the radio specialists in the Royal Signals. All of this wealth of technical knowledge that we would be really better placed to have on board and we're, we're not targeting them. And it would take something as simple as saying we would especially welcome applications from our veteran community to really you know, improve that overnight, I would imagine. I think it's a really important point. Just on the advert by saying, you know, veterans encouraged to, to apply really, really would be quite a big game changer. And when you're looking at your EDI, uh, your quality, diversity and inclusion. Actually, I would suggest that veterans come into that uh, because we are we are a, um, a community of distinction mm. and we add real value. Um, and what we do know is that diversity of thought is is a value. So I would encourage uh, any anybody anywhere around the globe that just listens to this to, to to use that as a you know as a first step on this journey. That is some solid guidance that businesses could quickly and easily implement. Very good. Fergus, I must ask you, because you've, you've put a lot of time in with us today, how can people support Walking with the Wounded and its activities? We do a lot of fundraising. Uh, we do events. Uh, we, we take a whole load of uh, corporates up to uh, Cumbria and tab the hills. It's called the Cumbrian Challenge, and we do that in May, and it's great fun. We do a lot of bespoke individual work with corporates to help them on their employment journey. And, of course, you know, gladly receive checks from anybody everywhere around the world. Um, at the end of the day, we are a fundraising charity and we need funds to continue to support the vulnerable veterans that we do. But at the end of the day, I want to be a champion for veterans because Ooh. actually uh, what we add value to in our society and continue to add value is is it is un, there, there, there should be a spotlight on it because yeah. actually, you know, just what we do as a community is unsung. And we are actually some of the, you know, the, the, the best operators in our communities once we leave the, uh, leave the service. Fantastic. And if anyone does want to support Walking with the Wounded, we have placed a, a link in our show notes. Now, we always ask our guests one standard final question. So, gentlemen, if you imagine there are no constraints financial, personal, political, etc. If you could change one thing today in your personal or professional life to ensure that we all have a safe and livable world tomorrow, what would it be? For me, as someone that's always had a deep affinity for and has always been drawn to the ocean, mine would be the immediate cessation of the dumping of sewage and waste into our oceans and waterways. 
If I had no constraints, it's something I would stop immediately. Both professionally and, you know, I, I, I spend my time on the water, I work on the water, I live by the water, and it's something that I would have done immediately. And you, Fergus? I think, I think if I, if I, if I could go reinvent myself, I, I would love to build out a community action project where we could get everybody on board because what I do know is small steps lead to huge changes. The government are going to fight and do what governments do. They've got big ticket things about you know, fossil fuels and where our energy is coming from. But actually, if I could get a, a million signatures and send that to Tesco's and say, hey, you need to stop and change your packaging today, they would do it because it will affect their bottom line. And if you could create a wholly beneficial community action thing that can actually point out waste and and get people to change their habits, and I think we could use community power to change businesses because, of course, businesses are driven by profit. And if you affect or threaten their profit – went to Tesco's and said, do you know what? Mm, we're not going to do this anymore. They will go, oh my God, one, two, 5% down on revenue. Actually, this makes good commercial sense to address why we're wrapping this piece of meat, whatever it is, in this kind of plastic. And then that plastic won't go into Paul's ocean. Very good. Fergus, Paul, thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you for your insights today and for those pearls of wisdom at the end. I said towards the start of this podcast that this is one of those topics for me where you walk away with an entirely different perspective. That perspective wasn't about the wider point of the value of a diverse workforce. Look, that's a no-brainer. And Fergus, you mentioned that several times. But it was about that flash of the bleeding obvious for me. Businesses can ill afford to let valuable resources go to waste. That's not just shameful, it's irrational. This was Planet Beyond. Until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs>